This is Caught in the Act with Tim Clark. Welcome back to Court in the Act. Rachel Michael was much loved by her mother, by her sister. She was well liked, particularly at St. Pat's Community Centre in Fremantle, where her face was familiar. She helped people with disabilities. She looked out for the homeless. She cared about the communities more vulnerable, of which she was one. She was planning a big celebration for her 40th birthday, but tragically she would never see that birthday or that party. Because on September 24th, 2015, aged 38, she died at the hands of another from stab wounds suffered in her own home. It was a cruel killing, made more callous because her bleeding body was left alone by the killer. That killer, the man who had plunged that knife into Rachel Michael, made a triple O call that night to tell police something had happened. But he wouldn't say exactly where, or to who, or by whom. And so, it would be weeks before Ms Michael's remains were found, and a murder probe could finally be launched. That probe would prove to be one of the more exceptional pieces of police work in WA in recent years. It involved intensive surveillance by real undercover cops, an introduction to a fake crime lord, and the use of a scenario which had previously helped solve one of the most infamous child murders in Australian crime history, and which also eventually led to the capture of Rachel Michael's killer. Joining me again to walk us through the case of the state of Western Australia versus Adam Christian Vido is the West's crime and police guru, Shannon Hampton. Thanks again, Shannon, for joining us. Thanks, Tim. No worries. So, on a Wednesday night in September 2015, Rachel Michael got back to her house in Langford, southeast of Perth, at just before midnight. Cameras captured her getting home, and she wasn't alone. With her was a man who stayed at the unit until 7.30am, when they both left and then returned about half an hour later. Later that night, from a phone at the nearby Langford Alehouse, police received a strange triple zero call from someone reporting a serious crime. Shannon, who made that call and what did he report? So that, the man making that call was Adam Vido. And he was a 27-year-old man, um, someone who had a relatively happy childhood, but turned out to be a disinterested student who turned into a drinker, a drug user, a public nuisance, and then a criminal. He was homeless, he didn't have a job, and he could be erratic. And that is exactly what he was on that night when um, he made that call and he told the triple zero operator that he'd just witnessed someone being stabbed and that he'd been chased. Um, But he couldn't give the operator the location of where. When police responded in person to that phone call at the pub where he made it, they found Vido, he was sweaty, agitated, he was breathless and acting pretty paranoid. Mm. 
So uh, what did he tell him? I mean, you would think the police would be pretty interested to talk to someone who had made a call like that. Yeah, so he didn't tell them much. He, he, he was acting very strangely. I think um, the term was bizarre in court. He he told them that he'd been at a party at a house. Um, he admitted quite uh, freely that he'd been on the gear pretty hard. Um, but he said he didn't know who was there with him or who lived at the house that he'd been at. He didn't even know where that house was. But um, as we'll find out, those statements actually turned out to be lies. Um but because Vito claimed that he didn't know where he'd been or who he'd been with, the police didn't really have anywhere to go. Mm. So Rachel Michael's body went undiscovered for nearly a month. On October 20, 2015, a worried friend went to the home of Rachel Michael and what they found was horrifying. Ms. Michael was dead on her bed. A subsequent post-mortem examination couldn't precisely determine the cause of her death because of the extensive decomposition of her body and the effect of insect activity. But some things were obvious, like the first stab wound in Ms. Michael's abdomen, a second to the back aspect of the left shoulder and a third to the back of her left arm, and another to the front and right side of her neck, extending towards the right shoulder and exposing the jawbone. There are also bloodstains found in the corner of the lounge room in Ms. Michael's unit, of a type most likely to have been caused by an artery being severed, an artery like the one in the neck. So, WA police now knew they were on the hunt for a killer and immediately called on anyone that knew anything to talk to them. After the assessment of the crime scene, we are now treating this death as a suspected homicide. We would like to speak to any person who knows Rachel and who may have seen her at any time since the 7th of October of this year. Although Rachel lived alone, uh, she is well known in the Langford area and attended the local C3 Langford Church. She also frequented the Fremantle area um, and specifically is known to the people from St Pat's. Dozens of tributes flowed for Ms Michael from those who knew her and many that didn't. Such a happy young girl, such a genuine smile, a beautiful soul. And days later, her sister Christy paid her own personal public tribute. She was very loving and caring. She was a very special person to us. I mean, our family's very devastated. Please come forward and give us some answers and a bit of closure. By this day, however, police already had a person in mind. That bloke from the pub who made the weird call. Because they had already interviewed him again. Shannon, what did police ask Adam Vito when they went to visit him again and, and what did he tell them this time? So this time he admitted he, he did know Ms Michael um, and he said that he, he'd known her for about a decade um, and he admitted that he had gone to her unit um, on one evening but he claimed he couldn't 
remember exactly when that was. Um, and then he gave them a version of events um, of what he claimed that they'd been up to that night. He said that they'd had a smoke, they'd drunk uh, alcohol together and they had sex. And that went, um, you know, some way in explaining why his DNA and fingerprints are on the mattress that Ms Michael's body was found on and the walls inside the unit as well. Um, But what he did say is that when he left Ms Michael's unit that night, she was alive and that she wasn't injured. She was fine. So did police ask him about the answers that he'd given to them the the first time they found him after he'd given that, made that call in the pub? No, weirdly, he wasn't. Um, And ultimately, while police had strong suspicions that Adam Vido was somehow involved in Ms Michael's death, there was insufficient evidence to lay a charge. So what they did was they had to come up with a plan to try and get that evidence. And that's what they did. And um, that involved a months-long investigation, which was highly secret and highly elaborate. And also undercover. In November 2015, Adam Vito made a new friend. That friend told the itinerant how he moved in some shady circles and that he was also friends with someone much higher up in that underworld, the boss of this WA crime syndicate, a Mr Big. His new friend, who was in fact an undercover police officer, told Vito that if he wanted to, he could also earn his way into their gang, secure an income, some sort of future, a chance to turn his chaotic life around. But only if he did what he was told, which was what he did for the next months to come. Increasingly elaborate scenarios were presented and concluded of the criminal type. He was warned that if he messed up, he would be dealt with pretty harshly. But when he passed the tests, payment was forthcoming. He was given a new phone, new clothes, and more importantly, acceptance into the gang, which at one point Vito even said he would be willing to take a bullet for, all building up to a meeting with Mr Big, Carl, the godfather. Shannon, police worked for months within these personas, all leading up to this meeting with Mr Big. What happened then? So the scenario was so elaborate that it even involved getting Vido out of Hakeo prison one day where he'd ended up on other uh, more minor charges. Um, And he was so immersed within this gang. um, By this time... He was told by the covert officers who who were actually pretending to be corrupt police officers that they could organise a day away from his cell uh, so he could meet with Carl, who had flown into WA from Melbourne. That's what he was told. Um, From the jail, he was taken to a ritzy hotel room in the city and there he was introduced to MC, who was was the bodyguard, and, and then Carl, the big boss. He'd been warned by the others in the gang not to bullshit Carl because there was nothing that he didn't know. Um, and as Tim said, he they were they called him the Godfather, 
and they warned Vido that they better show he, he better show him the ultimate respect. Um, and Carl himself actually boasted that he was untouchable, and Adam Vido was sat down and put in the hot seat. Yeah, it's incredible that. The undercover officers could be so good at what they do, so good at creating this scenario that this chap would even believe that they could just whisk him away from a high security prison to go and have a have a drink with um, with an underworld figure. Yeah, in hindsight, when you think about it, it is um, pretty unbelievable that he would have uh, fallen for that, mm. and that is what happens. But um, yeah, he was so involved and trusted this gang with his life that that he just went along with anything that, that they said. Mm. And trust is obviously the key word. Because when Vido got to that hotel room, Carl asked him to tell him anything in his past which might compromise their underworld operation, whether there were any skeletons in the closet. Carl dropped in that the syndicate knew of an interest by major crime detectives in Mr. Vito. What the f*** is all that about, mate? Carl asked. Vito answered, well, they questioned me about a murder, but it's all good. Carl asked again, what's the story? Vito replied, I was there, I was drinking with this chick and ended up leaving, and then someone's gone and killed her or something. Denials. And elaborations. Vido bizarrely repeated a rumour that Miss Michael's killer had chopped her head off and placed it in a freezer. But he still insisted he wasn't a killer. Carl tells Vito, don't be embarrassed, mate. I'll get it sorted. But he also tells him again that he doesn't believe him. And so he asks again, I need to know. I need to know the truth, mate. You've got to be honest with me. And then... Adam Vito said this. There was a knife there and that. She was sort of grabbing the knife and I pushed it at her. She just looped. She was yelling out the window. Then she went and grabbed, went for the knife, like, come at me. So I grabbed it off her and, yeah, went to push her and I took off. Carl then asked, so how many times did you stab her? And Vito replied, just once, Carl, just once. And then I got out of there. They were there one minute, the next minute they were gone. They simply vanished. A gripping new true crime series. Two young girls, they matter to people. Vanishing Cousins, Evil by the Beach. Watch it now at thewest.com.au forward slash vanishing. Shannon, what happened after Vido disclosed those details to Carl? It wasn't long after that confession that uh, Homicide Squad detectives swooped. Uh, in fact, it was the same day. They arrested Vido and they took him in for even more questioning. Um, and it was then that he immediately backtracked on the story he'd just told Carl, which, unbeknown to him, had actually been recorded, obviously. Um, but he told the homicide detectives who interviewed him that he had lied to Carl because he was intimidated by him and scared for his safety. He said that he was lying and he, and he didn't know these people and, and what they do. He said, everything I said there, I was scared. He kept pushing me, so it's not the truth. He, he went on to say, I'm not going to say anything, you know, to piss people off. I've seen this sort of shit go down. I was saying anything to get out of there. I didn't kill her. That's all I can say. But Vito was subsequently charged with Miss Michael's murder. 
And police had actually been listening to that conversation um, as it happened and also obviously recording it. And then later, details of that undercover meeting and the recordings were revealed in court, but not in open court. Why was that? Police are notoriously secretive about the methodology they use, especially when it's in undercover operations. Um, And when I covered this case in court, I recall sitting there on the first day and the prosecutor was outlining her her case and I was thinking this is just an amazing story and something that I hadn't really heard unfold in a Perth court um, in my time in courts anyway. And... um, and we filed a story for the paper the next day and it was read by some senior police officers, including the police commissioner at the time. And They, they weren't happy, were they? No, they were not happy. <laughs> um, they sent a big team of lawyers from the state solicitor's office down to the, the courthouse um, and they basically imposed suppression orders around the evidence that the undercover police officers would be giving. Um, they even went as far as to close the court so that journalists couldn't even sit in there and they uh, obviously protected their identities as well. Um, from memory, I think they even, you know, snuck them in a back room, back entrance or something like that so that they weren't seen walking into the courtroom by just people sitting around. So, um, yeah, it was quite extraordinary, but because we we were so... Um, we knew the importance of telling the story properly and, you know, the interest of fair and accurate reporting and and just because, you know, this is quite an elaborate uh, investigation that we felt our readers and people should know about and, you know, how, how this man was brought to justice, I suppose. We um, fought for the right to be able to expose um, elements of the of the case and we sent our own lawyers in and we ended up coming to an agreement that we could have uh, copies of redacted um, versions of the transcript. So that was a bit of a compromise mm. where we could understand, um, you know, what, what we could know about um, the case while the police still kept under wraps the things that they think could have um, jeopardised future investigations. Mm. And I've seen that before as well. The protection of undercover officers is obviously of uh, critical importance specifically to those officers who put themselves uh, directly in harm's way every day. Um, And it's not unusual for those officers to give evidence, certainly um, have their identity suppressed, their uh, referred to by number, not by name or by you know by their pseudonym and not by their actual name, obviously. But um, in this case, uh, closing the court, um, did you feel that was a trying to balance up the fact that they maybe hadn't bargained on us being there for the first day to to, to hear all the detail? I think so, and um, I mean this case was not one that uh, rose to prominence whatsoever Mm. in the media. So, I mean, there were no other journalists in the court. It was just myself. Mm. Um, And I think that maybe they just didn't expect a journalist to be sitting there that day when, you know, all of these um, details were set in open court. And, I mean, we did nothing wrong. We just reported the case like we would report any case. Mm. Um, So, yeah, I'm not sure what went on there. Um, Maybe it was a bit of a... uh, 
miscommunication um, between, you know, the police and the, the DPP, I'm not sure. But, yeah, I think it was a bit of a shock when they opened up the paper um, that day and, and read, uh, yeah, all the details of this investigation. But it wasn't all the details because what was suppressed was the actual um, scenarios that led up to the meeting with Carl. But yet, still, an extraordinary police invention for just one man. Multiple criminal scenarios acted out by multiple officers, all playing the roles of gang members. Minions of escalating importance leading to the top boy, Mr Big. Which is what this undercover scenario is referred to by law enforcement agencies who have used the same technique to catch killers all over the world. Its first documented use was in Canada in 1965 to catch an ex-cop suspected of stealing 1.2 million of cancelled currency from a warehouse in Vancouver. The Royal Canadian Mounted Police, the Mounties, estimated they had used the technique a staggering 350 times by 2008. And in New Zealand and here in Australia, it has been employed in major murder investigations. None bigger than the search for nine-year-old Queensland boy Daniel Morecambe and the predator who took him. Good evening. After almost eight years of searching, police have confirmed they've found remains of missing teenager Daniel Morecambe. Forensic tests on three bones found in bushland near Biwa match the 13-year-old's DNA. Reporter Amanda Abate joins us now live from the search site. And Amanda, how is the Morecambe family coping tonight? Sharon, they spent the day together with close family only as they try to come to terms with the shock of hearing those words. Scientists at a forensic lab in Adelaide confirmed at about 8 o'clock last night the bones belong to Daniel. For five months, Queensland police moved themselves and their subterfuge to Perth, where their prime suspect, Brett Cowan, was now living. He was already known to be a deviant predator with at least two living victims. But after giving evidence at the inquest into Daniel's death, detectives had been targeting him as a suspected killer. And in August 2011, after five months of investigation, a meeting was finally organised between Brett Cowan and Arnold, his Mr Big. Arnold. Um, Shadow Hunter, alias Brett Peter Cowan, yes. the main suspect in the disappearance of Daniel Morecambe. He went missing in Queensland 7 December 2003. He tells Cowan if he can't sort this out, he'll be dropped from the gang and an upcoming big job that could earn him lots of money. Honesty, trust, respect, all right? Then comes the startling confession. Yeah, OK. No. Yeah, I do. All right, so, okay, so you did it, but what I'm saying is, you know, I, I, I need to kind of go, I need to stick you right back to the whole thing. Cowan describes that day when he left home to pick up a mulcher. He says he saw Daniel on the side of the road and parked his car in a nearby church car park. Uh, I've walked in, sat there, and then the bus drove past, and that's when I said, I'm going down to the shopping centre, do you want a lift? Yep. And he's gone, yep. Shannon, the similarities between the Morecambe operation and the one which got a confession from Adam Vito, they're, I mean, they're striking, aren't they? Yeah, almost identical. 
And in fact, Adam Vido's defence lawyer, Ken Bates, referred to the Morcom case in his closing submissions to the jury. And he said that in that case, it was, uh, you know, the, the confession was uh, dynamite. But um, he said that in that case, Cowan not only confessed to killing Daniel Morcom, but he took to the police to the location and then they found the bones that could be identified back to Daniel Morcom. But that, while it was very powerful in that case, it, there wasn't those similar similarities in this case. As alluded to by Ken Bates in court, the Mr Big scenario is not without its controversy. In 2014, the highest court in Canada ruled that the use of it in one case, which had elicited a confession from a father accused of killing his twins, was actually unconstitutional. That led to a strict two-step test being enshrined in Canadian law, which must be run before any such evidence can see the inside of a courtroom again. In the UK, the US and Germany, the Mr Big practice is effectively banned. But in the Morecambe case here, it literally led police to that little boy's remains. After Cowan was told by his Mr Big that he needed to show the gang where he had dumped the little boy's body. And Cowan did what he was told. Police! Stay there, Brett. Stay where you are. Stay where you are. Stay where you are. Police. Stay where you are. Brett Cowan, Steve Blanchard, Detective Senior Sergeant from the Homicide Unit in Brisbane, and you know Ross Hutton. Is that correct? Sunshine Coast CLB. Oh, I don't know him. You don't know him? No. Okay. Brett, we're here to, uh, we're investigating the abduction and murder of Daniel Morecambe. Yep. Okay. You're aware that uh, you've been spoken to before in relation to that? Mm -hmm. Yep. Okay. What I have to tell you is that you don't have to speak to us today. Okay. Yep. You have the right to remain silent. Yep. You don't have to say, answer any question or make any statement. Yep. Do you understand that? Yep. Just to, just to tell them um, that I'm under arrest, am I? Uh, not at this time. If you're happy to remain with us and speak with us in relation to this matter. No, you just can arrest me. All right, you're under arrest for the murder of Daniel Morecambe. Yep, cool. I'm under arrest for Daniel's Daniel Morecambe's murder. And in veto, despite arguments by his lawyers that his immediate denials to the overt police showed he had been lying to the covert police, the jury accepted his confession to Carl was the truth. And as such, they were satisfied he was Rachel Michael's killer and found him guilty of her manslaughter. And Shannon, when it came to the verdict and the sentencing of Adam Vido, Justice Michael Corboy had some very specific things to say about the investigation. That's right. Justice Corboy, um, when, he, when he sentenced the killer made mention of the police resources that went into finding Ms Michael's killer. He mentioned that, as I said before, that her, sadly her death didn't um, attract, you know, some of that intense media speculation that you can, um, you see sometimes when there, when there are homicides in Perth. Um, yet the police didn't take that into account and yet still put every effort they could into finding her killer. Obviously, these sorts of investigations, undercover stings, um, you know, are not easy to pull off, um, and, and it went for a number of months. And Justice Corboy noted that it, you know, it might have been easy, if, easy for the police to move on to other cases um, and just 
leave Miss Michael's death and, you know, an unsolved unsolved homicide, but they didn't. And he noted that without that effort by the police that that could have quite easily been the case and, and we, we may never have known what happened to Ms Michael and, and who was responsible for her death had the police not dedicated those resources to finding out. And as it always does, the court also took into account the impact the death of Miss Michael had had on her family, on her sister Christy and her mother Carol. Victim impact statements are always hard to hear, but they're also the most visible means an observer can truly understand the impacts crimes like this can have on those directly affected. In her victim impact statement, Carol Michael wrote, no mother should have to bear the pain of losing a child, particularly a child that is taken violently and for no apparent reason. Shannon, thanks for joining us again on Court in the Act to uh, give us your specific insight into this specific case. No worries. Thank you, Tim. And a quick postscript. Adam Vito has now served his minimum jail term for the manslaughter of Rachel Michael and is currently eligible for parole. The Prisoner Review Board confirmed to me this week that a possible release was considered last month and was refused. Thanks for joining us again on Court in the Act. If you've got any questions or cases you want explored, then please email us at courtintheact at wanews.com.au. And remember, if you want to know what's going on in court, don't get caught short, get caught in the act instead. See you next time.